Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. You know, when you're going for that run late at night, there's no one there but you. You're not trying to show off. You're not trying to do it to impress anybody. You're doing it because you want to win under the lights. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, that's good wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gents, welcome to Wrestling Changed My Life. This is your host, Ryan Warner. My guest today is the great Lee Kemp, one of the best wrestlers in these United States, hands down. Here are just a couple of his stats. Four-time NCAA finalist and three-time champ. He also beat Gable in college, so take that for what it's worth. And then at the world level, he was a three-time world champ and definitely would have been an Olympic gold medalist had it not been for the 1980 boycott of the Olympics. Damn you, President Carter. Shame on you, sir. But it doesn't take away from what Lee did, and he shares that whole story in this podcast here. Before we get to the interview, fan of the week time, and it goes to Lucas MMM, the Hawaiian sensation, one of our favorite fans here at the show. Thanks for tuning in, my friend. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, check out Lee's documentary. It just came out. It's called Wrestled Away, the Lee Kemp story. You can find it on LeeKemp.com as well as Amazon Prime. Outstanding documentary. I highly recommend it. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for the great one, Leroy Kemp. All right, we're here with Lee Kemp. Lee, thank you for taking the time, sir. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for uh, inviting me to be on. Absolutely. I'm excited and honored to chat with a legend such as yourself, sir. So I thought about a number of ways we could start this, but I think there's no better place than at the very beginning because you had a, kind of a crazy childhood. So let's just start there. I mean, where were you born and what was your family life like growing up? Well, I, uh, I learned when I was maybe seven or eight years old that I was adopted. So, um, so I'll start there. I, you know, I was a uh, born Darnell Freeman uh, on December 24th, 1956 in Cleveland, Ohio. And my mother's name was Barbara. And she was a teenager. She was maybe, I don't know, maybe 19 or so. And she had a two-year-old at the time I was born. And she gave me up for adoption pretty much at birth. So she, in the hospital, kept me for a few days. And then she knew that uh, that I was going to be taken away. And she never saw me for the next 36 or 37 years. 
when I actually reconnected with her. But um, and it's it's been a good connection. I, I keep in touch with her. I've got uh, you know I've got an older sister and a younger sister, and my younger sister's son William wrestled actually, and as it turns out. It just ironically, uh, he went to Warrensville High School. He wrestled, and his high school coach, his name was Nick Conti. Nick Conti wrestled for my high school coach, <laughs> Richard Beckenbrock. <laughs> just kind of a weird. So uh, of course we didn't know all that when it was going on, but after I met William and met his high school coach, uh, Nick Conti, he's no longer coaching. But when I learned all of that, and Nick said, Lee, you know, uh, Dick Dapperbrock was my high school coach, too. And Dick Dapperbrock, he made all the difference in my life. I mean, he, you know, I started wrestling really late, uh, only in ninth grade. And uh, he became the head wrestling coach my 10th grade year. And he just sort of, I was a diamond in the rough, man. I, my record was only 11 wins and eight losses, three ties that we had tied back then in Ohio. So I didn't have a very good it basically a 500 season, and uh, he. It wasn't so much his wrestling knowledge; it was just the fact that he cared about me, and uh, just he encouraged me and he believed in me. And I could tell he he had the highest expectations for me. Um, the next two years, I went undefeated and won the state title. So I mean, he he planned a, a wrestling camp for me to go to after that 10th grade year. And that made all the difference in the world. That was in 19, summer of 1972. And uh, Dan, I met Dan Gable at that camp and had, had a chance to drill with him and all that, see him train and then go home after the camp and watch him win the Olympic gold medal on an old black and white television wow. <laughs> in, in Chardon, Ohio. And, and from that point on, I said, I, I, I want, I want to be just like him. So, I set out that summer, the rest of the summer, training like he trained, reading everything I could about him, and and then I just went through the next few years undefeated, in state champ, and the whole bit. So it's just, um, it, it, it's just phenomenal what wrestling has done for my life. It, it's uh, just finding something that I could just be passionate about, and and the success came later. You know, I wasn't wrestling. To, to win medals or to to be great, I guess you could say. All that is an after thought or a byproduct of just being passionate about something, giving it 100%. And then typically, if you have talent, if you are, um, if you have some skills, I guess, and if you have some sort of a, you know, propensity to be good at that thing, by putting all that time into it and being passionate and having good coaches and mentors and all that stuff, usually you'll become really good at it. You'll, you'll be one of the best at it. And, and I was fortunate that way. Passion seems like the key ingredient in finding something you love. And I talk to people now, Lee. It's amazing to me that most people in life don't have a passion. I just thought that growing up, you know, I was crazy about wrestling so was my family. I just assumed that everyone had something they were crazy about, but that's not the case. No, it, it isn't. And my advice to people that I have the opportunity to talk to about uh, goal setting 
motivated by themselves is sometimes you have to try a lot of different things. Uh, a lot of wrestlers, because I, you know, I coach a lot of kids wrestling and a lot, a lot of parents and, and, um, wrestling is very similar to other things in life when children are young. Usually the parents push their children into certain things. And I see a lot of kids wrestling because the dads, and I mean no disrespect to the parents of the dads that push their kids, because I push my son hard in wrestling too, but, but sometimes, sometimes that's just not the right thing to do because some, some kids just don't, they just don't want to do it. They, they need to find their own way. They need to find their own passion. And that's hard. It's really hard because in life, I've observed that people take the easy path. It's just kind of a natural human instinct. Even with all the success that I've had, there's times I wanted to take the easy path, even in wrestling. But um, wrestling is not the easy path, believe no. me. <laughs> so uh, so uh, it's hard to keep boys and girls now in wrestling because it is so difficult. Um, but the rewards are great. And rewards go far beyond medals. It's, you know, what you can learn from, from just learning how to pick yourself back up after getting knocked down in wrestling translates into life uh, a thousand times. And uh, even though you're successful, you still get knocked down. So, like, I've been knocked down in wrestling. I've had disappointments in wrestling. I've had a lot of success in wrestling too, but I've also had disappointments. Absolutely, and like you said, not many losses, uh, very few. But you know, you had them, and and some came uh, outside of your control. And we're going to get into that. But you know, uh, between when you were given up for adoption in your tenth grade year, what was life like for you, and where'd you grow up? Well, you know what? I was blessed in that I was adopted by an older black family, Leroy uh, and Jesse Kemp. Jesse was my mother. Leroy was my dad. I was named after my father, Leroy Percy Kemp Jr. So I was five years old when I was adopted, and and my name was changed to Leroy. And they were beautiful people, wonderful parents, um, angels, <laughs> I called them. My mom was an angel. My dad was also an angel. They they were they didn't have kids of their own, and they were older. They were in their fifties, and they decided to adopt a son, and I was that son. And um, my biological mother, you know, she had a a child, an older you know child, two years older than me, and then she had another child after me. But she gave me up for adoption, and that was a blessing, really. I mean, yeah. this was because um, my uh, my parents had adopted me. They were just hardworking people, uh, ethical people. They were just they had great character. They taught me uh, how to be a man, basically. They taught me how to be a, a good man. Taught me how to work hard, how to set goals. Uh, they're not, not taking shortcuts. Um, my dad was the kind of man that if he told you to do something, you'd better do it. And it wasn't, you know, not, not now... Uh, the child rearing has changed, and the type of child rearing I have, the current thinking of today would call that bad and wrong. And but you know, my parents, they made me respect them. You know, I mean, I couldn't talk back. Uh, they told me to do something, chores. I had to do it. I couldn't not do it. And if I didn't do it, my 
dad and mom, maybe do it again. And that even again, until it was done right. And they were hard on it. You know, if, if they made dinner and I didn't like what was prepared, then I wasn't eating that night. No. <laughs> so it's just, see, that type of thinking, current, the current thing of today would frown on that, you know. Um, I like that kind of thinking, yes. though, that old school mentality. Yep. Oh, yeah, yes, and yes, I got spanked. <laughs> I got spanked, you know, and, and the teachers in my school, they had paddles prominently up on the teacher's desk, and if you got out of line, they whacked you with the paddle, you know? That would be called child abuse today. So, you know, I think we just had a better quality kid growing up. At least they understood boundaries. They understood discipline. They understood the law. I grew up in an environment, you know, my, my mom and dad, you know, we lived in a black neighborhood in Cleveland, but all the men were present. They were married. I mean, I, I just didn't, I didn't know what divorce was growing up because all the, all the kids, all the friends that I had, the black friends that I had, they had moms, they had moms and dads at home. Uh, the, the, the families took pride in their yards, you know, well manicured, the houses were painted, everything was nice. And so... Uh, the unique thing about my life was after sixth grade, my parents wanted to leave Cleveland. And we moved to an all-white neighborhood in Charlotte, Ohio. So uh, it would be like moving from Chicago to kind of like where you grew up, maybe in southern Illinois. Farms. We moved mm-hmm. from Cleveland to Chardon, which is a rural farming community. We had 25 acres of land. My dad kind of just wanted the land as a hobby. He still worked in Cleveland in the factory, but he wanted that for himself and for his family. And uh, that's when I got into wrestling. But I had to learn how to get along with people that weren't uh, black like me. You know, I had to figure out that there was another world out there. And uh, not not all kids get that opportunity. You know, uh, like I know you had a, a story featuring Tony Davis and for him to go to go to go to college and get a degree and all that stuff and everything that wrestling afforded him changed his life. You know, without wrestling, he never would have gotten out of that environment. And without my parents adopting me and then moving to Chardon, I never would have gotten out of that environment. Although where I grew up was 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 okay. It wasn't uh, the inner city of Cleveland. It was on the outskirts. But during the '60s. Every city, every major city was going through uh, turmoil, especially after Martin Luther King's assassination in the 60s, the late 60s. Um, uh, the Huff area of Cleveland, the Huff riots, every major city had riots going on. And even though we weren't in the inner city, we weren't far. So shortly after that, 1968, after all that stuff, my parents moved to Chardon, Ohio. And that probably was one of the reasons they wanted to get out of Cleveland. So, um, a lot of turmoil during so, that time and a lot of upheaval um, just in general. You know, my, my dad is older. He was born in 49, and he's a you know, self-taught history guy. But he says, you know, you look at pictures from 1958, 1959, everyone's wearing suits, everyone is dressed nice, and there was yeah. an order and then 1968, 1969, you look at pictures, and it's, it's a lot of change. It, not that the change is bad, but it was just change. And like as you describe your parents, it's describing my grandparents in that same way, where these were good, wholesome people that where they went to work, 
they got shit done, part of my language, got things done, and they were just good people, and they didn't lie, they didn't, you know, there was no, you know what I mean? It was just good, solid people, and those are like dimes a dozen now. I mean, those are gems now. You don't see those that much anymore. You really don't, and in my neighborhood, it was kind of an unwritten rule that any neighbor could discipline. If you were around the corner, around the block, getting in trouble, a neighbor who knew you could, could come up to you and <laughs> reprimand you, and you'd listen to that neighbor. I saw that going on. So you were always being watched. You were always being, you were being raised by the neighborhood. Everybody had similar values. And your parents wouldn't get mad if they did that. Oh, no, no. They, they wanted it. They wanted to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> they, they told me, they told me you're going to get two spankings. One by whoever your teacher at school or the neighbor that saw you doing something bad. And then when you get home, you're going to get another one. So, right. So that was right. And, like, you wouldn't think twice about telling your dad you're not going to do something back in those days. Oh, are you kidding me? Oh, and my <laughs> son, I love him to death. I, I love all my kids to death, but they it's just a different era. You know, my son is 19, and, and again, he, he, he's a wonderful young man. But times are different, you know? I mean, but uh, he, you, you have to take a different approach with you know, with young people today a little bit. I still get the same results, but it can't be as direct as it was in my era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could just say it one time, and that was it. My son, I got to say it three or four times, maybe, you know, <laughs> just before he gets the message. So. Now, did you have a a passion or a, like an obsessive personality before you got involved with wrestling that you put in other directions? You know, now that I'm older, I've had a chance to reflect on my life a little bit. And, um, you know, especially with, you know, uh, just some of the recent things like the documentary uh, on my life, I've had to really dig in with the uh, with the director and, and over the last 10 years. It's been 10 years in the making of the documentary. And so I've really had to think about a lot of different elements of my life, really. And now I'm putting, a, a, you know, kind of some just some thought into it and some evaluation to it as a 62 year old man now and, and uh, I, I really think just through my adoption process and I was an only child when I got adopted by Leroy and Jesse Kemp and I, I spent a lot of time alone and that's not a bad thing but you know there, there was no video games obviously nothing things like that so uh, you know kids of my era we had to occupy ourselves by, you know, going outside or like, like, like even in Cleveland, I can remember where I could leave in the morning and, and, uh, I didn't have to be home until, you know, until the sun was going down. Basically my parents really didn't know where I was at, but one thing for sure, I better not be getting in trouble because, you know, so we just, we just played in the streets and we went to the park and we, we just had fun. You know, my childhood was a lot like, um, the Little Rascals, if you can remember that TV show. Yeah. Um, I watched the movie, it was made in the 90s, but I know what you mean, though. Yeah, kids were just, you know, we, we, you know, we got in a little bit of trouble just for doing stuff like stealing pumpkins or throwing apples. It, you know, it mm-hmm. wasn't, it, we weren't robbing anything, you know, we were just being kids. And we were playing, we had to pick up games of baseball and basketball and we just played hard in the streets and in the parks 
And then when the sun was going down, you'd better be home. And that's the way our lives were, how they grew up. And, um, and so that, those are my memories. So uh, I, You know what I love about that we, we, kind of time is that people's imaginations were a lot more uh, vivid and exploratory at the time because you'd spend time in your head if you were bored. Like if it's the dead of winter and you can't do anything. Um, I used to, my brother and I, we'd use our imaginations a lot and we'd think up crazy things just to entertain ourselves. And I'm sure you guys did the same. Oh, for sure. I mean, absolutely. You know, we, we, uh, you know, if you wanted a toy, you actually would make it, you know, uh, (laughs) like if you wanted, if, if you wanted a, uh, like a, like a, like a skateboard, you'd get your old pair of skates and, you take the wheels off of it and you screw them onto the bottom of the board. I mean, stuff like that. And, and, and you play with it. Or if you, I mean, I can remember playing basketball on like a, a closed basket. My mom had, you cut the bottom of it off and we nail it on the side of a tree. Right. And we, we played basketball with not even a basketball with something we'd find and we'd roll it, you know, roll it up and we'd play all day like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd play baseball with a, with a stick and we hit rocks and, you know, we play at a, at a local pond and, you know, it was just constantly imagining things. I, I can remember um, doing skits, kind of like the little rascals. If you remember some of those episodes where they would, they, they'd have their own little skits and stuff. Well, when I was growing up, we, we'd have our own little Olympics, you know, we, we'd have these races in the streets and then different, different uh, other events that we would do and all the kids would It'd be organized by by the older kids, and it was all clean fun. It was awesome, and we'd have right. our own little Super Bowl. You know, we'd be <laughs> playing, playing, playing football, and it, it was just it was awesome. It was awesome. Now, when you went to the so your sophomore year, you you meet a life changing influence. Pardon the pun. Wrestling changed my life, right? <laughs> that kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so you you have a average season. First year involved, you go to a camp, you run into Dan Gable, who you'd later actually beat in a match, which is incredible. But you you run into him at a camp, then you came back home, and you start to adopt his habits. And there a fire was lit, and the fire would burn f- for you until you know the night you know the early '80s, so a long, long time. But take us back to like a month after that camp, what things were you doing, and like how intense were you about it? back then well the first thing i noticed when i was around not even just dan gable but before dan gable when i was starting to realize you know how far i was away from the better wrestlers in the room because when i would be in a wrestling room i would always try to you know see what the best wrestlers were doing and i would match myself myself against them and I would wrestle with them and and of course I'd get beat but I would try to figure out how I could get better and then when I and then when I got into this camp and I saw Gable he was arguably one of the best wrestlers in the world of any weight class I mean he was he was recognized worldwide and the Russians were trying to find one thing Russian that they thought could beat him either and I knew that when I was at the camp so that impact on me was incredible and the fact that he drilled me some, gave me some encouraging words the whole bit. And uh, and then when I came back, I realized the big gap 
that existed between him and me. I wanted to try to close that gap by doing the things that, that I saw him doing at the camp. Because he was in the final phases of his training before going to Munich to win his gold medal. So I was watching Ron train. I was watching Cliff. Uh, ben and John Peterson were there, who were also oh, yeah. uh, gold medalists. And so I saw the intensity of practices. And my practices weren't that intense. So I thought, well, if I want to be anywhere remotely close to Dan Gable, i got to start training like he's training. So when I, kept, when I got back home, you know, I was, you know, I was you know, living on a farm then, so the farm chores took on a whole new meaning to me. Before, when I was avoiding the farm chores, like most normal kids, now I was embracing them, and I was embracing all the hard work, all the bailing hay and all the different things my dad had to do throughout the farm. You know, we had 25 acres of land, and my dad just kept it manicured, and we had animals, we had you know, cows, eggs, chickens, and there was always something to do. Uh, I remember once I made the mistake to tell my dad I was bored. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, like kids do, oh, I'm mm-hmm. bored. My dad looked at me and said, oh, you're bored? Okay. After about six or seven hours later, <laughs> working, <laughs> I never said I was bored again. Never. Not around my dad or mom. Because uh, it wasn't abusive, but it was just, hey, you go out there and do this. Night. Now you're going to cut the grass. Now you're going to clean your room. Now you... Man, I was like, are you kidding me? And you couldn't talk back. No. Because you're going to get a, a whooping next to doing all the work. I love that. So, uh, so it changed your whole so, attitude uh, on, like, I could just imagine you, you know, in that car ride driving back from that camp, how excited you must have been and how you know, motivated you must have been because that was really a big turning point outside of getting involved in wrestling in the first place. But that was a turning point. Your attitude changed. And it's like, man, how exciting is it to know that you're doing what you're meant to be doing and you're in just a really productive and motivated state as you were for the next 10 to 15 years? You know, I've had some close friends say that to me, people that knew me in high school. And uh, this one guy in particular, his name is Dan Melise, he said to me once, and we're still friends today, and to this day, and he said to me once, I mean, when you were going through high school, I always admired the fact that you knew what you wanted. And it wasn't the fact that, you know, that you had all the success. It was that you knew what you wanted and you went after it. That always impressed me about you. How did you know you wanted that? And that's, that's, that's a tough question. I, I don't know how I knew it, but I think, I think some of that's divine uh, appointments, I call them. Just they're divine. They're things you can't explain. They're thoughts that come into your head that you don't know how and why they got there. They're just a divine appointment that, that I had with wrestling. And one of the things prior to that, I, I grew up in the streets of Cleveland. There was no wrestling. I didn't do any organized sports. And all we did was pick up games of basketball. So when my parents moved to Chardon uh, after sixth grade, so I went off with a seventh grade basketball team. because That's all I really knew. And I didn't play. I sat on the bench the whole time. I thought I was good enough to be playing, but I hated the fact that a coach could pick and choose uh, when you would play. And, and, and so when I found wrestling at that camp, I understood what that meant. If I could beat you, I'm going to, I'm going to be on the team. And if I beat you and beat these other guys, I'm going to win this tournament. It's, it's, and you know, of course there's officiating, but it's cut and dry. I wouldn't say I've had, 
Yeah, it's like it's the ball's in my court, man. I, if I, it's up to me now. It's not up to a coach. It's not up to anyone else. It's up to me. And uh, it's it's one man or one one contestant against another, one on one, and it's one step beyond the, the like the non-contact sports like track and field, all that kind of stuff. Those are one on one too sometimes, but contact sports, it's it's me against you in the middle of a mat, and there's no one can help me and no one can help you, and let's go, let's see, let's see who can win, and I. And the extra work you put in pays off sometimes in getting your hand raised. And I saw that relationship. So nobody was going to work harder than me. No one was. So I saw the example. The supreme example was Gable. And nobody was going to outwork me. And I was going to be the best that I possibly could be. And, I, and the second thing I realized is I, felt, I, I realized uh, that I was pretty strong. So the first thing was that you know, I realized that I control this. The second thing is, hey, I'm, I'm pretty strong genetically. So I thank God for that. You know, uh, my parents, uh, I, I just had a, genetically a pretty strong body. My son's that way also. Uh, he's wrestling too. But, but, but there are a lot of strong guys that don't win. I mean, it's just not about being strong or being quick or being whatever. Fast, tall, short, whatever. You've got to take the skills that you have, that you're born with, and you've got, to, you've got to add to that, and you have to make yourself better. Like, I made myself even stronger. You know, I, I learned more technique. I got in great shape. I remember losing matches because I wasn't in great shape. I can remember wrestling guys that were stronger than me, but they, they gassed out quickly, and I beat them up after that. That was one of Iowa's strong oh, yeah. um, things. You know, yeah, you, you might be winning after the first period. Now the second period, the score is tied. Third period, you get tacked or fall. You get hit. So I realized that I, like, I love this sport. I've seen skinny, skinny guys, white and black, beat up strong guys, white and black, you know? And it just, I love that. It, it wasn't about how tall you were, how short you are. And strength helps, but it, I've seen skinny guys beat up strong guys, you know, with slick technique. David Taylor wasn't necessarily a power wrestler when he was young. He's developed into a pretty physical guy now that he's gotten bigger, but man, when he was winning four state titles in Ohio, you look at him and think, oh, I'm going to just crush this guy. He was 103. <laughs> yeah, he, he would smash you. I've seen him smash guys, big, strong guys, white and black, just big, muscular guys, you know, uh, you know, and he just did it through leverage, technique, conditioning, mental toughness. I love that about wrestling. And once I realized that, once I realized that, that was within my control, and, you know, when you're going for that run late at night, there's no one there but you. You're not trying to show off. You're not trying to do it to impress anybody. You're doing it because you want to win under the lights. Muhammad Ali said it best. You know, you win when you're practicing hard, you're practicing so that you can get under the lights and win in front of fans. And that, that was, that was, that once I learned that, it was awesome. And I learned I was already stronger than most people. So that helped me. And it just gave me a good starting point in the sport of wrestling to start to excel. But your mind was the thing that to me is your advantage. Like you were 
so mentally focused and driven and you have to be to make that kind of a turnaround to go from you know average record to being a two-time undefeated state champ your junior and senior year in a really tough state in Ohio it's it's almost unheard of so I mean take us to like midway through your junior year what's a day in the life like for you how many times a day were you working out and were you visualizing a lot like your goals and what you wanted to do Oh, visualizing constantly. And I was an only child, so I didn't have any distractions, really. didn't have any brothers or sisters. I had my own room. I had stuff in my room to, to motivate me. Uh, like little what? quotes and sayings. And there, there was one that I, that I always liked. And uh, it's, it's, it's more of a biblical quote. It was a scripture. And it's talking about being humble. And... Uh, I grew up in the era of Muhammad Ali, and he certainly didn't <laughs> was that humble when he was at least being interviewed or anything like that. But he was a great <laughs> athlete. But uh, uh, but I learned just through from you know just more from a you know I, I, maybe my parents, and then obviously had the biblical teachings to back that up. The humility was more important. So anyway, this quote it just says that uh, do not think of yourself to be something when you're nothing. Uh, you know, don't think of yourself as being great. Think of yourself as being blessed. You know, God is good. Only God is good. We're not good. We're not worthy to call ourselves good. So that really had an impact on me because I, I observed people and the ones that were the humble ones I felt that that's how I wanted to align myself because everybody gets beat and everybody who talks a big game, you know, we're all going to get beat in the end anyway. And I always liked the way the humble people were in victory and in defeat. You just, you don't have to change. You can just be who you are. And it's more respectful anyway. Um, but I, you know, I, I grew up in the era of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know. And oh yeah. So I had pictures of, I had pictures of people with real strong physiques on my wall out of the Muscle and Fitness magazine because I could envision, I could visualize myself being stronger, and I, I would, I would, you know, I bought things from the magazines like things to work out with. And my mother bought me a weight set, and so I had the pictures of Frank Zane and. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sergio Olivia and Franco Colombo and all those, all those athletic bodies. And I wanted to be strong like that. Then, of course, they had the pictures of Gable, Lloyd Teaser, and all those people. I, you know, and, and there weren't many black athletes to aspire to, but when there was one in amateur wrestling, it was, boy, I really gravitated Bobby that. Douglas. Uh, Lloyd Teaser. But, but, well, Bobby Douglas wasn't. You know, I didn't know who he was because the magazines didn't show him that much. Got it. It was, it was only one magazine, and I, and you know, Amateur Wrestling News came out once a quarter, maybe, or whatever it did, maybe once a month. Gable, of course, was prominent in there. But then um, Lloyd Teaser won the world championships in 1973, and he was in the front of Amateur Wrestling News, and that had an impact on him. Was he black? Uh, uh yeah, he was black. Well, I didn't he realize was that. Black. Yeah, okay. he, he was, yeah, he was American. He was the first uh, black world champion in 1973. Gable, of course, beat him to make the 72 Olympic team. 
Gable won the gold medal, and the very next year, Roy uh, Gable retired, and Malik won the gold medal and the world championships. And then I can remember uh, that same year, or the next year, 1974, uh, Jared Hubbard, black wrestler from Michigan, he won the national title, and he was on the cover of Amateur Wrestling News beating Bob Holland, who was an Illinois wrestler. And I had those two clippings on my wall, the one showing Jared Hubbard and the one showing Roy Teaser. And, of course, I had the pictures of Muhammad Ali and, you know, uh, Arthur Ashe when he won the Wimbledon and things like that. Um, and, and I'll just say this right now. I'll take a moment to say this. You know, race is, a, is, a, is just a very complex thing. And to have images when you're young of people that look like you achieving greatness is really important. We can't diminish the importance of that. You know, like even no question. Uh, kids when they're growing up... Get, getting their first dolls and stuff. I mean, when I was a kid, growing up, there were no black dolls. If you were getting a doll for your daughter, it was always a white doll, you know. And I can remember it took a long time before there ever was a black GI Joe, and I had all the GI Joes back when I was a kid. So, so to see those images of these successful black athletes, and then later, after I started to do a little digging in some of the amateur wrestling news, in fact, I would go into my coach's office. And I would take his wrestling news, so stealing at an age. Not good. I'm sorry to admit that, but I would take stacks of them home, and I would just pour through them. And there I saw Bobby Douglas, and I saw James Tannehill, and I saw Curly Colt, and I saw all these other black athletes that they were uh, in those nights. And, and Bobby is a truly, Bobby Douglas is a pioneer. His story is equally amazing. Just like Tony Davis' story. But I'm trying Bobby's to get story, him on here, man. I'm trying to get him on. It's a... Oh, Bobby's story is, is because he grew up, I mean, Bobby's like, like maybe 10 years older than me. So he's, you know, he's over 70 years old, you know, maybe 72, 72, maybe he's 75, I don't know. But he grew up in, in extreme poverty and extreme racism and, and wrestling truly changed his life. I mean, he ended up, uh, going to a junior college and then you probably know some of the story Yeah, and wrestling for the, the one of the most favorite colleges in the whole history of wrestling, Oklahoma State. And if it wasn't for an injury, he probably would have been a national champion. And I think, I think, I think racism played a lot to do with that senior. I, I can't speak really? for him, but well, Oh yeah. I, I, I just think it's, 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 it's what he did at Arizona but, state when they won is a lot of, I, I talk about it every chance I get because as a kid, my favorite movie was Jerry Maguire and Rod Tidwell mm-hmm. went to Arizona State, <laughs> if you remember. Mm-hmm. And so I loved Arizona State growing up and I'd fly down there to go to the, the Sunkissed Kids Camp. I'd go door to door and sell a raffle and I'd raise money to go to the, the Sunkissed Kids Camp at Arizona State. And once I realized that you know Arizona State won the Nationals in like 89, somewhere around there, during when during the time I was down, and it was the last time anyone from the Pac-12 has ever won, I was just fascinated by that. And you know, Bobby Douglas was the head coach, and you got to know that when he was recruited by Iowa State, his goal was to win a national title. So it's just amazing to me that he did that at Arizona State and not Iowa State, which was you know more of a power. So um, fascinated by him as a coach, and then I'm producing a, a documentary now on Gable actually. Not as a wrestler, but as a coach. But 
as a wrestler, you know, Gable was beaten up pretty good by Bobby Douglas routinely. And then only after Bobby retired did Gable even make it onto the Olympic team and 70 uh, with the world team in 71 and obviously the Olympic team in 72. But, you know, Bobby Douglas is a fascinating character. It is. There's something that he probably wouldn't say, and I'll, I'll say it. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but when Bobby uh, beat Dan for that Olympic team slot, um, the coaches made Bobby wrestle Dan again, and then Bobby beat him again, and then they made him wrestle again. And they just they just kept wrestling because they wanted they wanted Gable to win. And the way Bobby tells the story, he said, "I, I he said I beat him like five times in a row. I mean, just one match after another. They just won." And he said, in his mind, he said, if I lose one time, they're going to put him on the team. And finally, Bobby said, you know what? I'm not wrestling anymore. It's obvious you want him to be on the team. So I, I quit. You can, you can go ahead and put him on the team. And he, the way he explains it is that Gable's dad stepped up and said, look, this is not right. Bobby won. He's on the team. Sort of a thing. Wow. And so, uh, and, but his version might be a little bit different, but I know it's similar to that. That's the um, gist of it, huh? That, yeah, because you know Dan, Dan was starting to to have success, and, and he was the up and coming guy, and, and and Bobby was the old guard, and uh, and and they 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 wanted Dan on that team, and so they were going to wrestle him right off that team. Um, but Bobby didn't complain about it; he just he just he just won. And another thing, when he won the, at Arizona State, he did that with no money. You know, That's what very I'm saying. Yeah. small salary, very small salary, didn't have the support staff. I think he said he didn't even have an assistant coach when he started kind of thing. <laughs> and, 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 and he was able to recruit and just think about this one. He got the most successful college wrestler in the history of American wrestling to go to Iowa state. How did he do that? How did he get Kale Sanderson to go there? I mean, that's a beautiful story in and of itself. He is a master strategist strategist and tactician uh, and a lot of tales there's so many great coaches who will give Bobby credit for what they learned being under him as an assistant coach uh, Zeke Jones being one uh, Kevin Jackson being another Kale Sanderson being John another. Charles one of my uh, favorites from that area I've had him on and I love when I love when coaches are master motivators and know how to push you to the point where you want to break and uh, you know, Sean Charles has some great stories of Bobby doing that to him at Arizona State. Love that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. But Bobby is an unsung hero. He has gotten recognition, of course, but nothing anywhere close to what I think he actually deserves. Um, the, right. the, the books he's written were amazing books, um, groundbreaking for the, for the time. And there's never been anything uh, so groundbreaking since then and I don't even think he made that much money from this book either. You know, it's just unfortunate. But um So we're talking about yeah. race a little bit. What was the race relations like in your town in Ohio when you were in high school? Was it was it rough or was it okay? Well, you know, I was um in fact I brought this out a little bit in my documentary, but I, I was uh quiet and maybe the being quiet was maybe some of my upbringing being adopted, uh being an only child things like that. And, and I was in two foster homes through those years before I was actually adopted. So, you know, I was in these large institutionalized environments. 
So I was just alone. I was alone a lot, not alone in terms of people being around, but alone me. Uh, Close relationships. Being around someone that, yeah, that, yeah. And so I think those skills enabled me to survive, to do okay in Chardon. I think I just, I just stayed away from people. I was quiet. I just did what I was supposed to do. And then for two, and then I got involved in sports, even though I didn't play on the basketball team. I joined the basketball team. So that gave me a camaraderie with the team. And then uh, the next year, eighth grade, I went off the basketball team again, still didn't play. <laughs> uh, and then my senior year, I decided to go off for the wrestling team. And that's when my life changed. You know, I finally realized I, I'm in control of my destiny here in this sport. So once I became successful in wrestling, I was accepted. And almost any black athlete will tell you that doesn't matter what environment they're in um, uh, I could be a Harvard if I was a good athlete there I would you know and I wasn't uh, uh, you know I, I would be treated different and I was I just was there was there was like three black families in, in Chardon and the high school at the time I was there at least I was one of three black families and uh, well, so not many though I mean that's that's almost nothing you know that's that's yeah it is almost anything. But but I just stayed away from it. And then when I became a good wrestler, everyone started to like me. <laughs> you know, crazy. <laughs> Sports so, is the great uh equalizer many times. Um, for better or for worse, it always seems that way. People like winners and they like people who know what they want, and that was you. And so you just I mean, what a turnaround. You go on to win two state titles. You get to Wisconsin. How come you didn't go wrestle for Gable at Iowa? At the time, Dan had Chuck Yeager there. Chuck was uh, would have been a junior my freshman year, so I would have had two years, possibly, uh, you know, up behind Chuck to beat him to make the team. And he's the guy I beat in the finals my freshman year, actually, and that's a good decision in overtime. And Dan knew knew that. He so beat Dan you your freshman year, strategic. right? Yeah, he beat me my freshman year. Okay. So Dan is pretty, Gable's very strategic. And he he knew of me, for sure. He knew of me, but he just felt that he'd be recruiting a guy where he had, he was pretty loaded in that area. Chuck was there for two more years. His 58-pounder was there for another year. And didn't know I was going to grow. Um, and, you know, uh, back during that era, though, there weren't that many black wrestlers in Iowa State that I could remember. I think uh, Chris, Chris Campbell. Campbell was probably... Yeah. And Chris Chris was on the team at that time. But Chris walked on the team. He wasn't really recruited. <laughs> That's another guy um, who he barely wrestled in high school and <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> goes on to be a world champion in 93, 92. But in, in the 70s, you know, he beat uh, one of my all-time favorites, Mark Johnson, in the finals a couple times. I uh, love Mark Johnson. He grew up in the same area where I, I'm from, so he was always like someone to look up to. But, um, yeah, I I know his story very uh, – not that much, you know, very little, but I, I know that part that he barely wrestled in high school, and then he gets to college, and one of the one of the, the great talents of that time as well. Oh, yeah, he, he hitched tight to Iowa. <laughs> he wanted to wrestle for Gable. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, and Gable, Gable was – not against recruiting black athletes, but, you know, he's got all this abundance of talent in the Illinois area, Iowa, whatever. So to recruit a kid from New Jersey was not something that was on his radar. But 
Dan was, uh, the way I hear the story, he was out east doing something. Maybe it was recruiting or something. Because well, he recruited the Bandits from New York. Uh... Yeah, he did. Yeah, that's true. He did. There was some reason why he, um, Dan told me this story. I think um, when he just took the job at Iowa, or at least the head coaching job, he, Dan said the AD uh, wanted him to go out east uh, to speak at this banquet. And and it wasn't for recruiting. It was just maybe a favor to the AD. Yeah. So Dan went out and spoke at this banquet. And he was anxious to get back to his team. And that was one of the few practices Dan missed at Iowa. He hated missing practice as a coach. But the AD wanted him to, to go do this uh, favor for him. And while he was there, he he was introduced to Chris Campbell or something like that. And he started recruiting him off of that very uh, accidental meeting, Chris. And so uh, so at least that's kind of how I heard it, something yeah. like that. So Dan was definitely – Dan was definitely willing to go after talent once he would identify somebody that was really good, like Chris. No doubt, no doubt about it. Um, I mean, there's so many ways that so many ways we could go with this. But one of the things I want to talk about is it's kind of a theme for the podcast, and I feel kind of weird about it. But I always ask people about where they were at after a loss, just because I think that's really interesting. That I'm selfishly interested in that, and so, man. There's not many losses for you, Lee. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you made the NCAA Finals four times. After that, you won the World Championships three times. Then you got a bronze. And then the, the two areas that I was curious about were 84 when you got second and then your freshman year when you got second. And since we're kind of on that topic, you know, you got second your freshman year. And what I read, it was a referee's decision, which I really don't understand that. But bottom line, you know, whether it was fair or not, you lost. I, I don't know what happened. But, you know, where were you at? that Monday after the nationals and what was it like the next year for you to get back on top? Well, my goal was to be a four time national champion. So when I didn't achieve that goal by losing my freshman year, then my new goal was I don't want to lose again in college. And so I was working out that Monday trying to achieve that next goal. Cause at that point there was no one that was undefeated for three years in college. And that would have given me a record of, an unbeaten streak that would have been the best in college at that time. And so I was able to achieve that over the next three years. I ended up losing, I didn't lose a match. I was 110 wins, one loss, and one tie. The loss was to a non collegiate wrestler. So that doesn't count the collegiate record. And then my tie was to a collegiate wrestler, but it was still a tie. It wasn't a loss. And then you back out the other non collegiate matches, and I had 101 straight consecutive victories. And the only person that has, has more, Kayla Samson. So, um, man. So, so, so you were I just motivated always, as ever that next Monday. You're in there, refocused, and you're like back to business, baby. Yes, I I had to win three then. Could not have any mistakes, no hiccups. If if I didn't achieve three national titles, my career in my mind would not have been successful. So, uh, don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but that's just I just. That's that the standard was, you set I for yourself. Was, yeah, I knew I was capable of doing it, so I had to do it. And then you, on the international scene, I mean, three world championships in a row is just unbelievable, especially when you look at now just how hard it is for Burroughs to win 
anybody to win one, and Burroughs has won, obviously, four, I believe, and then you won in 78, 79, and then we got to talk about it, but it's probably one of the, the, you know, the most painful things probably you've ever experienced. 1980, Jimmy Carter, January, says we're boycotting Moscow. Um, And I've talked to Sergey Belaglazov on the podcast about what it was like when they boycotted 84, but obviously you were going to make the team, you were going to win a gold medal. Did that shake you for a while, or did you just keep on going? Oh, that that was devastating. It was. Uh, it's like a death that happens in your family. You know, you 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 move on. Of course, you have to, but you never can get that loved one back. It's like that. It's like losing a child, losing a, a spouse. It's it's something I still think about, and I get reminded of it every four years when the Olympics come around. I'm very happy for the athletes that are going to get their chance to test themselves against the best athletes in the world. I'm always always excited and grateful that, that, that these athletes are going to have their chance. But it, then it brings back these 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 memories of me being denied my opportunity. Not just me, but the hundreds of other athletes, not only in America, but throughout the, the world that boycotted with us. So, um, but I, I've, I've learned from it. Uh, obviously, you, you definitely have to grow from it. But it is difficult because that is the pinnacle. I mean, I want to, you know, I mean, I've won world titles and stuff, and it's not the same as being one of the champions. On the one hand, you could say, you know, it's similar because you're, you know, it is a world championship. And, um, and you know, you're, you're, you're competing against the same people as the Olympics, but it's not the Olympics. So, so, uh, a lot of people I say it's harder, my, though. You know, I well, I think it is harder, but you know, uh, and the reason why I say that is because in in, in the Olympic Games, because there, there there's a financial obligation for each country going to the Olympic Games, and some of the financial obligation is to field the team in amongst all the other sports that are also going to be contested at those games to have an Olympic delegation. So it's a, it's a, it's a major ordeal to be in the Olympic Games. So as a result of that financial obligation, a lot of countries aren't there. Now, the World Championships is not as much a, of a financial obligation for countries. So typically in, in a sport like wrestling, you'll have more athletes represented in the World Championships than in the Olympic Games. But the common thing to both is the top wrestlers will always be at both. But, Good point, yeah. But, 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 but when you have a situation with more competitors, you have to respect and believe in the capabilities of every human being. Somebody could have a great performance at the World Games. You know, it could just be their day. It could be their moment. And they break through and they win a world title. Because they because they, they were there and they had the opportunity to be there, that same person may not be at the Olympic Games just because they're not going to be there. Then there's political things that keep countries away, like America didn't go. I'm aware of that because I'm an American, but you know, Iran doesn't come to every Olympic Games. Um, you know, there's certain countries that just they don't go to the world every year. Whatever's going on in their country, it it, it just gets it screws them up. Well, Russia didn't come to our Olympic Games in 1984. That screwed that up. So, uh, 
So it's but, like but, but there the was. Is, sorry, go ahead. Oh no no, that, that, I'm, I'm good. Well, I was just gonna say because of those two things, there wasn't a real Olympics again until '88. You know, it's just like what yeah, a shame for those guys during that eight-year span. It, it, it like in America, not discrediting any of the Olympic gold medals in 1984 because I wish I would have made the team and, and had the opportunity for a gold medal myself. But out of a typical world championship or an Olympic Games, back then we had 10 weight classes. We might have one or two gold medalists and maybe two or three more uh, second or, or, or bronze or silvers, and that's it. In 84, we had seven gold medalists because we were, we were beating Canada in the finals. You know, it just... And, uh, you know, like there were some good Japanese wrestlers, like uh, and when at 125, uh, the Japanese wrestler was uh, amazing, uh, Tomiyama. In fact, he beat Belgolazov once or twice to win the world. So uh, Barry Davis had his hands full beating him, and Barry had taken the second silver medal. But, you know, but the Russian wasn't there either. You know, he did this Bulgarian. He went out. So it, it screwed up that whole thing. It screwed that whole thing up. And now, and then now, and Barry was a, a silver medalist in a fully contested world championship as well. So Barry definitely was capable of being an Olympic champion for sure. And he was right in the match with Tommy up until the end. So, um, but, but, but when you have seven gold medalists, you've got to ask yourself, well, you know, the competition just really wasn't yeah. fair. And, and now you look at the 84 or the 80 or the, uh, or the, or the, well, that was the 84 games. You look at the 80 games that Russia had. They won, I think, almost every weight class except for one, too. That was like a European championship for them. You got to think at 80, the Russian nationals, you are wrestling for the Olympic gold or the Soviet nationals because back then all of the republics were in the Soviet Union, whereas now you have all these independent republics that are on the yes. road, right? So you think back then the Soviet nationals was for the Olympic gold medal. Just like in '84, it was like that for the U.S. team. Um, what do you What do you remember from your battles with with some of the Russians internationally? Well, to beat a Russian, that always was the goal because Russia always came prepared. They take a lot of pride in winning. Their athletes have a lot at stake when they're representing their country. You know, they uh, like if you lose too often. There, you, you, you're not going to be representing the country. So, and, and your lifestyle is enhanced greatly if you're a great wrestler from Russia. So, they have a lot of incentive to be good in Russia. So, whenever I had to compete against a Soviet, I knew that I was going to be competing with someone that was very prepared, someone that wanted to win, someone that that their very livelihood was depending on them winning that wrestling match. So, I always felt like I was going to have a great match with the Russian. I was always prepared myself. Uh, in America, it's not quite the same. Our, our American athletes are very prepared. They do want to win as well, but it, it's not life or death in our country. And countries like Russia, it is. I mean, if you don't win, you, you may not be on the team anymore. And now your life changes. But as an athlete there, you, you have a privileged life being uh, one of the you know, world-class athletes uh, from a place like, like Russia. Well, especially in, America, in Dagestan and Ossetia, it's their national sport, which really is oh, yeah. where all the wrestlers come from. 
know, they fill arenas to watch wrestling, just like we fill arenas to watch American football, you know. Absolutely. And then, you know, after your competitive career, you went on to have a really successful career in business, which is also something we could spend hours talking about. But, you know, just in general, like, what did you take from wrestling that helped you in some of your business endeavors? I know you owned a, a successful car dealership for many years that won a bunch of awards. You've created a, uh, a recruiting firm online. Uh, the name's escaping me right now, but um, you've created a nutrition company. So you're an entrepreneur. So where did all that come from? Um, and the name was Hire the Winners. You can yes, Hire pick the up Winners. The name from yep. Wrestling. yep, and I picked that name because of, of wrestling. But uh, business or any career that you have is very similar to, well, I felt it was similar to wrestling. You know, you've got to win every day at practice. Just like in business, you have to win every day. You've got to do something every day to move the business ahead. Otherwise, you're getting beat by the competition. And I was in the car business, which is a very competitive business. Very competitive. It was like wrestling every single day. I was familiar with the pressures of wrestling, and it was to me, it felt very similar to wrestling. And I and I and I liked it because my success or failure kind of depended on me, uh, what I brought to the table and the extra effort that, that I could put in. So, uh, and then uh, the people that worked in the dealership, I felt like I was a coach and I was coaching them to give their best performance that they could in, the, in that job setting so that we as a team could be successful. So uh, it, 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 it was very, to me, it seemed very similar to coaching and to wrestling. A lot of parallels there. And then one of my favorites, favorite parts of your story, and we're going surface level here. There's a lot more. But one of my favorite parts is in 2008, you were inducted into the UWW Hall of Fame or the FILA Hall of Fame, which that is like, man, there's only five or six Americans that have ever been inducted into that. And that's like, that's the highest level Hall of Fame. That's the world Hall of Fame. And you also got to coach the Olympic team and hang around some guys like, Cejudo and Cormier and Askren. I mean, what uh, what was it like coaching some of those guys back in 08? That, that was an amazing experience because uh, just even a few years prior to that, I couldn't have even imagined uh, doing anything like that. In fact, I wasn't even involved in wrestling. Why do you in say fact, that? Well, because I, you know, uh, I went through a real rough time in my life um, around 2005. Uh, I was married and was going through the divorce, lost my kids, and ended up spending some time in jail. It was just a tough time in my life. I was I was way away from wrestling. I hadn't even been around wrestling for 14 years. And uh, when I was trying to get back on my feet again, a real good uh, dear friend of mine, John Bardis, uh, invited me to come to the World Team Trials back in 2006. And I hadn't been around wrestling for 14 years. I told my divorce, ended up losing my business, uh, the car dealership. When I say losing it, I, I kind of gave it up uh, because the economy was bad. I went through the divorce. It was just a lot of stuff going on. And then I uh, became the coach of that, uh, one of the coaches of that 2016 that went over to China to compete. Daniel was on that team. 2007, I, I went back in and became one of the coaches of the junior world team. 
David Taylor was on that team, a couple other great athletes. In 2008, I was the Olympic coach. So, but that run was something I couldn't have even have imagined prior to that, based on where where my life was. So, uh, what was rock you, bottom you for you during to, those times? Well, you know, when you're, uh, you know, when life seems to be going well, you know, you're married, kids. You know, my kids were all wonderful kids. Uh, I loved my children. Uh, I knew the marriage was tough, but I didn't really think I was gonna. It was gonna be end up the way it ended up with me losing my kids. Uh, you know, finding some just the trouble that I got into based on right. Uh, the divorce process and not seeing my kids for around five years off and on. It's just a tough situation to find myself in. And uh, it was unbelievable, actually. It's just one of those things where you don't know what's going to happen from one minute to the next. And uh, things you thought were important are not important anymore. Uh, you know, you don't have any money. You know, you don't have... You know, in fact, I didn't, you know, didn't really have a place to stay for a long time. It was just horrible. I just can't even imagine going through that. Uh, but I have to do it. And, uh, but people like John Bardis, a uh, friend, who had me come stay at his house. I lived at his house for like three or four months while I kind of got my feet back on the knees, you know, in Atlanta. So I actually moved in with him in Atlanta put my stuff in storage and I just packed the bag and go stay with them. Here. So, uh, but anyway, it just, it, it, it just kind of culminated with me getting back in the rest. I like kind of went full circle. Here we go. And back I found, at it. I found purpose in my life again through rest because everything else that had purpose in my life had been taken away. I just, I lost. I didn't have. Uh, I just didn't have a direction. But the one thing that no one could take away from me was my wrestling. And the wrestling community embraced me back when I became the Olympic coach. I thought there was no way I could become the Olympic coach that they wouldn't. I had been on wrestling for 14 years, but they showed me the wrestling community. It was the leaders with USA Wrestling showed me that that Lee Kemp was still thought of and valued. And my expertise was wanted. And so that gave me a, a sense of purpose. It, it allowed me to feel good about myself again. And it gave me a new starting point. And then shortly after that, my kids came back to live. Something I couldn't even have imagined. So, wow. and now I'm, now my son, who never wrestled, he came to live with me at 10 years old. And I didn't push wrestling on him for about two and a half years. Uh, he was like 13 or so, 12 or 13, when uh, he, I finally convinced him to, to try wrestling. And now, lo and behold, he's got a scholarship to present state. He's wrestling scholarship. So um, just just amazing turn of events for even him. And How awesome is Troy Steiner? Troy is a great coach. Uh, when I knew that he was maybe somewhat interested in myself, I was all in. I was committed to to trying to convince my son to want to go there and trying to convince Troy to take my son. And my son was training at a club called Izzy Style with Israel Martinez. Who? 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 Chicago, baby. Yes. Yep. And I got to know Izzy and 
I had my son train there, and I knew my son needed to be have a great coach like Izzy and be in a great room. And I just stepped away and let Izzy coach him, put him in that room. And he changed from being a kid like me. Changed from being like he didn't go to state as a basically wrestled starting. He started in seventh grade, but it was like an interim program. No club. He didn't do any club wrestling until after his junior year. And uh, he told me one day, Dad, I, I, I really want to be as good as I can be in wrestling. So boom, we're in the Izzy program for two years. He goes to state. Uh, junior year, he's one match in placing. Senior year, he places fifth. So I'm proud of him. And uh, in Illinois State, he, uh, Illinois State, yeah, Illinois the large is so <laughs> tough too, man, isn't it? Oh, it is. And he was at 160, so he's at a very competitive weight class. And uh, and and, you know, and now he's wrestling 165 at the college, and and, and Troy has taken him, taken an interest in him, of course, by recruiting him, but. Um, I try to stay out of it, you know, because uh, he needs to be with a great coach like Troy, and Troy is good at this. And um, he sees something in my son. I, I can tell that. So I hope he can bring it out of him. Not not just the wrestling part, but you know, I want him to grow to be a good man too. And I think I grew as a man as a young man in college. I had great coaches around me like Russ Alex and assistant Wayne Clevin, the head wrestling coach. And starting with my high school coach, uh, Richard Deffenbrock, mm-hmm. they cared for me as a, as a person first, and then they wanted me to be the best that I could be as an athlete. And, uh, and they wanted me to be respectful and, uh, and, and, and humble. I mean, not that wrestlers aren't humble today, but um, it's just a different era. Um, my coach, uh, I knew, expected me to, to win with great, dignity and character and lose with the same dignity and character. So, right. um, and I, I lost in high school. You know, I lost in college as well. Uh, and in 1984, I lost my last round of matches with Dave Schultz. And I had to walk off the mat for the last time. I'm getting you know, retired, but... Um, Can we close with, uh, with that? I mean, with... I've had Nancy Schultz on here, and I'm fascinated by... Dave Schultz, watch the documentaries on him. Yeah, I watched the movie, which I really didn't care for, but the documentary on Netflix is amazing. What do you uh, What do you take away from the time you spent battling Dave Schultz back in the, back in his early days? Well, there's a biblical verse that says that talks about iron sharpens iron, just as uh, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Right. Uh, and Dave and I would would feel that way about each other. And Nancy thinks that I told Dave that. And I told Nancy that I thought Dave told me that. So, <laughs> uh, so, so uh, somehow we both felt like that and we, we, we both made each other better. And without Dave Schultz, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been the world champion that I was because Dave pushed me to a level much higher than I would have without him being there to make the team. And I think when he finally beat me, he was at a very high level and uh, allowed him to win. God, I think he's like an eight or nine-time world medalist. That's crazy to be in the top one and two or three in the world every single year and only losing by a point here and there to to get out of the gold medal round. So, uh, but yeah, Dave, Dave was always... Uh, 
very focused. He took wrestling very seriously. And, and, he, and he loved it. He was passionate about wrestling. So passionate that he taught himself Russian so that he could, so that he could communicate with the Russians because he felt they were the best in the world at wrestling. Uh, that's the type of dedication that he had. I love that, man. I mean, it's it's cool to hear the stories about learning Russian and, and all that, but I think what's clear from just watching some matches on YouTube is, to your point, like the humbleness when he won and lost. Like when he lost to Kenny Monday, he talked him into letting him be his coach or something like that. I mean, he was a guy who humble in victory and defeat, it seemed like. Yeah, like when Kenny won the Olympic gold medal, you, you remember this thing where he wasted Kenny up on his shoulders in Seoul, Korea, and ran him around the mat on his shoulders. Man. He said, that's what, that's what you do for champions. It's like an old school type of thing. They do that in Russia. And and he was cornering Kenny during his Olympic gold medal match when he won. He hoisted him up on his shoulders and ran him around the mat. It was really cool. That's Dave awesome. was very humble guy. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Uh, Lee Kemp, been an honor, sir, to chat with you here on the podcast. I know we were talking beforehand. We have some good ideas on, uh, on some other uh, people that maybe come on here. Um, Quintrell, we're coming for you, my friend. You don't know. You don't even know what a podcast is, probably. We're coming for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've we've hit on it a few times, but just kind of to, to wrap it down, we always close with this. You know, what is what has the sport taught you, and and how has it changed your life? And maybe what do you think you'd be without wrestling? Well, um, that that that's a that's a good question. Uh, I wouldn't have been pushed to see what I was really made of, if I can use that as a phrase. Sometimes if you're not challenged and pushed to the limit, you don't really know what you're capable of doing. Wrestling has done that for me, to me and for me. I've been able to to learn a little bit about like how like what I'm capable of doing. Or or it's taught me how to how to come back a little bit, how to how to fight back from something disappointing or a you know, loss, not just a wrestling loss, but some of the life losses that we have. Sometimes you're faced with fight quitting or not quitting. If you don't quit, then what do you do to fight back? So, um, you know, I tried to, uh, I try to make some analogies to this uh, as I went throughout my life, as I tried to relate it into my documentary. You know, just the wrestle the way signifies, uh, in wrestling terms, things that, that get taken away from you. But then when you realize that you don't want to stay down anymore, you have to figure out, similar to the wrestling terminology, you have to wrestle back. you got to get back in the tournament. you got to wrestle back and get a place. So that's where I found myself in my life. I, I had to wrestle back after having had things that I really wanted wrestled away from. I mean, you've you've known it on a number of levels, personally as well as in the sport from the 1980s stuff. So, man, I love hearing it from someone who really knows you know what they mean by that. So it's a great way to close this down. Thank you again, Lee. I appreciate it. And all great things must come to an end. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Give us a review, give us a rating, and share this with your friends. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life.